If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, we have one of these unique events. This is one of those events that's unique in the life of every family, but particularly when we're talking about Jesus. And that's the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, verses 13 through 17. So let's uh, turn to that and listen carefully as I read. And this is the word of the Lord. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the Scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing Gospel, the book of Matthew, to learn more about your Son, Jesus. And this is a text of great joy which will lead next week to a text of great hardship. And Jesus knew both sorrows and joys just like us. He identifies with us completely in order that he might be able to save us completely. Help us to consider what it means to forget ourselves and to remember Jesus. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. And as always, for this we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was just wondering, what do you think of Richard Johnson? What's your estimation of the man? Was he good or bad? Was he incompetent or a genius? What's your opinion? And as long as we're on the subject, what do you think of George Dallas or Cable Breckenridge or Schuyler Colfax? And I'm curious as to how you would rank William Wheeler, or Levi Morton, or Charles Fairbanks, or Alban Barkley, James Sherman, Henry Wilson, Garrett Hobart, or Elbridge Gerry. Those of you who are masters of trivia, or live in the hometown of one of these men, might have an opinion. But I'm reasonably sure the rest of you are sitting there saying, who? I have never heard of any of these guys. Now, if all those names are nothing more than names to you, don't be surprised. I hadn't heard of most of them either. I have to be honest, I had heard of two of them. But I guess I should have heard of all of them, and you might know who they were if I had used the names of their contemporaries, Dick Cheney and Joe Biden. See, all of these men were vice presidents of the United States. All of these men were a heartbeat away from the presidency. All of them were constitutionally next in line to be America's leader. And in their day, these men were loved and hated. They were respected and reviled. They were revered and ridiculed. And they were all campaigners. And when they were out campaigning and kissing babies and pressing the flesh, people were proud to have met them. They would brag to their friends, I shook hands with the vice president of the United States and then they would fill in the name of the very important man that you and I have forgotten. 
greatness. If there's anything in the world that's here today and gone tomorrow, it has to be greatness. Generals win victories. Heroes do uh, deeds of great daring. And they're welcomed home with the beating of drums and the fanfares of Fifth Avenue parades. But still, within a few years, the victors' battles and triumphs, the heroes' guts and glory, all forgotten. Politicians and statesmen shape and shake the world. But only for a passing moment. The click of the clock, the flip of the calendar, promises that the pharaohs will be forgotten, not those pharaohs, the ones in Egypt, but they'll probably be forgotten too, just like you. The statesmanship of princes, prime ministers, and presidents all become dry, dusty dates in unopened history books. Movie stars, rock stars, television stars cannot escape becoming shooting stars. For an instant, they light up the lives of all of their adoring fans, and then they fall from the sky. They disappear from sight, unremembered, unrecalled. Please understand, I'm not criticizing any time or any age group. Every generation forgets. Of all of you listening to me today, how many of you can give me the first, middle, and last names of all four of your grandparents? You don't have to answer that. But if the numbers hold, only about half of you, maybe, can actually do that. First, middle, and last name of all four of your grandparents. What am I saying? It's our nature to long for the um, praise and applause and approval of the world. To hope that our lives will be remembered and recalled and respected. But it's the nature of the world to forget and to fade away all human accomplishments, to have them wilt and wither all of our legacies. Greatness is an elusive thing. We argue about greatness. Who is the greatest president or prime minister? Who is the greatest um, sportsman? What was the greatest movie? What was the greatest song? We, we ask questions like, which is the greatest restaurant, the greatest car, the greatest deodorant, the greatest gift to give for Valentine's Day? And there's more than one catalog out there whose sole appeal is that it only offers the greatest products that money can buy. So don't be surprised when I ask, who do you think is the greatest person who ever lived? If you're a NASCAR fan, you might say Dale Earnhardt, but that would probably start a fight. Baseball fans might say Willie Mays. They would argue not fight so much. Maybe it's Alexander the Great or Napoleon or Caesar would be the suggestions of the military history buffs. Art aficionados or fans of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles might say Leonardo, Michelangelo, Donatello, or Raphael. Giving an answer to the question, who is the greatest? would see music fans locked in a life-and-death struggle, take no prisoners, cage match, as they fight for the supremacy of their chosen balladeer. 
Who's the greatest? Is Muhammad Ali really the greatest? Or would Rocky Marciano or Joe Lewis have done him in? Who's the greatest? It seems to be an impossible question. Because before you can give an answer, you have to ask, the greatest at what? And then after you give your answer, you have to be prepared to protect your nominee against a great many people who are equally sure but have completely different opinions than you. So can the question, who's the greatest, ever really truly be answered? Now it would be a foolish thing for me to bring you this far in the message if I didn't have an answer. So of course I do. And the greatest man in the history of the world is, drum roll please, John the Baptist. A little disappointing. What? That's right. John the Baptist. John was the greatest. Because before he was born, a prophesying angel said about him in Luke 1, You will have joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. To be great before the Lord, or as some versions translate it, great in the sight of the Lord, that's no small recommendation. But the claim for John being the greatest doesn't stop with the words of an angel. The angel's promise is certified by Jesus himself. Later in Matthew chapter 11, he'll say, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. There you have it. Jesus said it. Debate is over. Jesus says John is, without question, the greatest person who ever lived. And years ago, when I first read that, I had the same question. What? Why? Why is John the greatest? Maybe you're thinking the same thing, along with me and Cece. I mean, he wasn't the father of nations like Abraham. He didn't separate the Red Sea like Moses. He didn't escape the lion's den like Daniel. He didn't call down fire from heaven like Elijah. He didn't manage to avoid getting roasted like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, what exactly did John do to earn the title the greatest? He didn't write psalms like King David. He didn't build a temple like Solomon. What did he do that was so great? I mean, if I want to be like John and great in God's eyes, what should I copy? It's a hard question. And it's a hard question because when the Bible speaks of John the Baptist, it gets pretty stingy with the details and pretty sparing with the verses. Now, John can't be called the greatest because of his uh, eccentric looks or odd eating habits or strange clothing. Because you can go downtown in any major city today, find a bunch of people who would beat him hands down. And while John's message is convicting, as he took the Lord's... Uh, words and communicated the need for repentance before the Christ would come. John's not the greatest because he always said things which people found appealing. While all of us definitely need to hear God's call to repentance, sermons which say you're a sinner and are headed to hell are usually not very popular. Nor could John be called the greatest merely because he was a prophet. True, he did foretell the coming of Christ, the Savior of the world, but there were others in the Old Testament whose ministries lasted far longer and whose words 
giving guidance to those in the far-off future were equally direct. So, Pastor, I can hear you asking, I've stayed with you this long, what's the answer? Why was John the greatest? Before I give you my reply, I have to tell you, there's many scholars wiser than myself who will disagree with me. But I spent some time thinking about it, and I think John is called the greatest because he never forgot who he was. And just as importantly, he always remembered who Jesus was. One more time. John never forgot who he was, and he always remembered who Jesus was. If you read through Scripture, study history, even look at the people around you, how many can say that they never forgot who they are and they always remember who Jesus is? And I think that starts to become very clear to us in chapter 3 of Matthew, our passage for today. And the character of John, the greatness of John, comes through loud and clear at the baptism of the king. The baptism of the king. Starting at verse 13. Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. Well, for starters, we all stand side by side with John, who never forgot that he was a sinner in need of a Savior. Sure of his sins and his shortcomings, when Jesus appeared at the Jordan and asked John to baptize him, John very honestly, very humbly says, What? I need to be baptized by you. Truer words have never been spoken. John may have been the greatest man who ever lived, but that day... God's prophet stood before God's son. God's spokesman looked upon the world's savior. That day at the Jordan, John knew he was in the presence of the Christ, true man, born of a virgin, true God, conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. John knew he was looking into the face of God's son, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit had called the universe into being with a word, who had now reached out to fallen man with the promise of salvation, and who, even though at many would face unjust accusations, an unfair punishment, and an unearned death, was fulfilling that plan of redemption which would buy humanity back from sin, death, and Satan. John protests the prospect of baptizing Jesus for three reasons, I think. Uh, first, John is actually a lesser person next to Jesus. And I said he's the greatest man. He's not man and God. And so how can he, the lesser, baptize Jesus, the greater? Second, he offers a lesser baptism. As we saw last week, John offers water, a symbol of purification, but Jesus offers the Holy Spirit, who indwells believers and empowers them to break with sin. And third, what's most obvious, Jesus has no need of water baptism. John preaches a baptism of repentance, but Jesus hasn't sinned and therefore doesn't need to repent. Why should John give Jesus a baptism that he doesn't need? And so Jesus replies in verse 15, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. He's telling John that his ministry is not yet at hand. 
still John's hour. In three years, Jesus will complete his ministry and institute his baptism, but first he has to teach, heal, suffer, die, rise again. And then he'll charge his apostles at the end of this book, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. But meanwhile, to fulfill all righteousness, John must baptize Jesus. Jesus knows his baptism is the Father's will. By being baptized, Jesus identifies with his people in their sin. The nation of Israel, the people of God, need to repent. And Jesus is part of that nation. He's part of that people. And so Jesus comes to be baptized with them. He doesn't separate himself from them. Also, Jesus' baptism is an affirmation of John's ministry. By being baptized, it was as if Jesus is saying, John, I want you to baptize me because that will show that your message was true, that your ministry was true, and it will link me with your ministry, which is to pronounce the coming of the Messiah. So that's the first thing his baptism does to fulfill all righteousness. Secondly, it serves to relieve John's doubts. We know from John chapter 1 that John the Baptist himself had been unsure about the identity of the Messiah up to this point. In fact, we're told elsewhere in the Gospels that John even had doubts later on. Jesus didn't turn out quite the way he expected. And he asked, asked the Lord at least one time, are you the one or is there another? And this baptism is the Lord Jesus' gift to John to assure him, yes, I'm the one, John, remember, you baptized me. Remember, I'm the one you were preaching about. This baptism also serves to confirm the message of John. It symbolizes Jesus' identification with his people and their plight. It's as if Jesus is saying, yes, everyone else, John's message was true. It's right. It's accurate. You are sinners. You do need redemption. My baptism is a sign that I'm identifying with you. And finally, it's a sign that Jesus is the Messiah. He's publicly showing that he's the Messiah who's come to take away the sins of the world. And that's why he enters into baptism, even though he's sinless. For he's the Messiah who comes to forgive the sin of his people. This is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. John's ministry is now in full swing. But this very first public action of our Lord, the first step of his ministry, is to humble himself. Our Lord's humble. He calls us to the way of humility while the world tells us we ought to act otherwise. But the Lord Jesus' action reminds us of the importance of humility. We're not called to greatness. The world's going to forget that anyways. We're called to humility. It's required for his obedience on our behalf. And he says to his disciples, all those who follow after him have to learn to humble themselves and to serve others. Let me talk to the students here for a while. Students in your schools, in your neighborhoods, among your peers, it's very likely that the most popular kids will be those who are attractive, who are filled with personality, who are somewhat prideful, who are somewhat able to push themselves forward. 
We may be boys who are arrogant, talented, perhaps mean-spirited. They may be girls who are beautiful, and yet they're arrogant and look down on others that aren't part of their circle. And you are tempted, if not now, you will be, tempted to think that the only way you can measure up is to copy their behavior. And the Lord Jesus says that's not the way. But the way of glory is the way of humility. We have to understand that this is a very humble act on Jesus' part. The story of Jesus' baptism doesn't end there, simply with the baptism. Because there's a couple of amazing things that happen next, and they're equally filled with meaning. The first amazing thing we see is the anointing of the king. There's a baptism, and then there's an anointing. Verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So this baptism also serves, clear from verse 16, that God has anointed and appointed and equipped Christ for ministry. The baptism is a sign of God's approval of the Lord Jesus. It's a sign that God has chosen the Lord Jesus to be the Messiah on behalf of his people. And so the baptism fulfills all righteousness because it's a sign that Christ himself is willing to take on the role as our mediator. He's willing to be our redeemer. And in the baptism, the Lord is again stepping down. He enters humbly, receives this baptism. He acknowledges, first step, that I'm going to receive all the humiliation that's necessary in order to save my people from their sins. The baptism shows Jesus' willing acceptance of his messianic role. In fact, we often talk about Jesus' earthly life as his time of humiliation. Well, when he's in heaven, it's his time of exaltation. This is the beginning of that humiliation, public ministry. So, the Lord Jesus' baptism is an act that was performed on our behalf as the mediator of the covenant of grace. He doesn't need the baptism of repentance. And he doesn't repent on our behalf. But he does identify himself with his people as the one who would be the sin bearer and the one whose baptism, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, would bring renovation of our hearts and of our lives. So Jesus is baptized. Afterwards, he rose from the water and heaven opened. John said Jesus would baptize with fire. Fire judges and purifies. <coughs> Excuse me. And those are roles that Jesus will have. And yet the symbol of Jesus' baptism is a dove. This gentle, harmless bird. And yet biblically, doves are often used as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And so the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. Empowers him for ministry. We're immediately reminded from now on there's going to be a constant emphasis in the Gospels that to do his Father's will, to save the people his Father has given him, to make his Father known is the constant purpose of his life. And in all that he does, he does by the power and with the aid of the Holy Spirit. The very next chapter, starting next week, we're going to see he went to his great temptation under the leading of the Holy Spirit. 
And Luke tells us he faced that temptation full of the Holy Spirit and adds immediately after that that Jesus commences his public preaching, returning to Galilee, quote, in the power of the Spirit. Such remarks at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry indicate from the beginning to the end of his great work, he is always supported and directed by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures say he performed his miracles by the power of the Spirit. And so he taught and he preached and he lived by the power of the Holy Spirit, always seeking to do the will of his Father in heaven. As we go through the Gospels, we read that all of the Gospels. In Luke 4, it says Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And then we read him saying, one of his first public pronouncements, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And then in Luke 5 we read, one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Constant theme for the rest of Jesus' public ministry is the Holy Spirit is with him, and all that he does is done in the power of the Holy Spirit. Finally, we see back now to Matthew 3, verse 17. Not only Jesus' anointing of the Son, but the Father's identification. God tells us who the Lord Jesus is in this passage. He tells us from heaven. In verse 17, we see the view of the Heavenly Father. We see what the Father thinks of the Son. So the second amazing thing we see here is the confirmation of the King. The confirmation of the King, verse 17. It says, And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. The statement now completes the first phase of what is the revelation, the revealing of the true identity of Jesus as the Messiah, the Christ. Matthew's already told us he's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Matthew 1, verse 1. He says this gospel is a book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're told later in uh, Matthew, that he's Emmanuel, and he will save his people uh, from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. And now we know he's the unique and beloved Son of God. For 2,000 years, two millennia, 20 centuries from the time of Abraham, we have been waiting to see the unveiling of the one who would be the deliverer of Israel. In Isaiah 42, verse 1, we're told the Father would say of him, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then in Psalm 2, great messianic psalm, most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, we read, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. The heavens open at the baptism of Jesus and the Father's voice is heard from heaven and he says, this is my beloved Son. Two millennia of waiting are now fulfilled. The Father said, this is him. This is my Son. And we must remember this 
as we work through the Gospel of Matthew, because we're going to see the Lord Jesus despised, misunderstood, rejected, crucified, dead, and buried. We're going to see the world hating him, ignoring him, and thinking that he's crazy. And all that time, we have to remember, the Father doesn't see him that way. He is the beloved Son. And every time we see the world despise him, we have to remember that the Father loves him. Any parent in this room knows what it's like to watch your child be rejected or despised. Every parent in this room knows what it is to love that child with all your heart, even if they're rejected by their contemporaries. And every time we see the Lord Jesus despised by men, we have to remember what the Father has said of him. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. But in any case, the aftermath of his baptism clearly indicates another, if not primary, purpose of the Lord's own life in the history of our redemption. His baptism serves as his ordination to the office of the Christ. It's his outward coronation as the Prince of Peace. It's the occasion of his public installation as the King of Kings. Now, inaugurations can be pretty impressive events. But no presidential inauguration, no royal coronation in the history of human governments, no matter how grand, has ever compared to that given to the Lord Jesus Christ at the commencement of his ministry. The entire Trinity, one God and three persons, gathers at the Jordan that day. And God the Father spoke aloud from heaven his love and approval of his Son. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in the form of a dove. And the general significance of these events is very clear. Christ is being commissioned by his Father and equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the work which lies before him. And in this coronation and confirmation, God uses a strange man, John the Baptist. He's strange, but he's great. His ministry is winding down. Jesus' ministry is starting up. John is just the man for the job. At the beginning of this message, I told you that John never forgot who he was. And he always remembered who Jesus was. And how many people can say that? can say they've never forgotten who they are and they always remember who Jesus is. We can look at Scripture. Adam and Eve forgot. In their desire for greatness, they tried to uh, usurp God's authority in the aid of the forbidden fruit. Abraham thought he could do a better job at providing an heir for himself than God could. Famous men, well-known people like Moses, Samson, David, Solomon, and a whole slew of others, a who's who of all the famous names from Scripture, forgot who they were. But John never did. He never forgot that his job was to prepare the way for the coming of the Savior and to call people from their sins. Years ago, when the famous conductor, Leonard Bernstein, was asked, what's the hardest instrument in the orchestra to play? He said, second violin. He says, I can get plenty of first violins, 
But to find someone who can play the second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. If we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. John knew from the beginning his job was to be second fiddle to the Savior. And it's a job that John did with integrity. He didn't pretend that he was an inconsequential nobody. Long ago, the prophets had described and defined his role. He's to be the forerunner, God's appointed voice, crying in the wilderness, Isaiah 40. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John knew he was fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies, which he said would cultivate hearts for the forgiving grace which would be planted by a sacrificing Savior. And knowing who he was, John boldly told people to turn from their sins so they could beg the Lord for forgiveness. And by the Spirit's will, people came from all over the place to hear what John had to say. They came from Jerusalem and Judea and from all over. And they wanted to hear John's message, which was always the same. Don't forget who you are. You are sinners. Don't forget who you are. You are sinners. He said, you have violated the Lord's commands in thought, word, and deed. And if you're to be saved, it will only be by the grace of God through the sacrifice of his son. Even the scribes and Pharisees, the people that we would call the respected and honored pillars of the community, they're warned harshly. Don't think when you stand before God that you're superior, that you're doing God a favor. You are beggars, lepers, sinners. You need what the Savior offers, forgiveness and faith, pardon and peace. John never forgot who he was. And like John, we need to remember who we are and who Jesus is. So who is Jesus? Well, for starters, he's everything we're not. You know, my beard is gray, and it's getting grayer. And each week, the Lord allows me to speak to you. And I'm supposed to be wise, but I know I'm not. When my children and others ask me for advice, I don't have the answers. I can offer, at best, educated guesses. When people think or speak kindly of me, I know the sad sinner that I really am inside. Do you know yourself well enough to say that? Maybe you know who you are. Helpless, hopeless, and harried. Defeated, discouraged, despairing. And if you do, I pray you also know who Jesus is. The Lamb of God who takes away your sins. I pray that you will believe on Him who has the answers to all of your difficult questions. That you trust Him who gives the right advice when you reach life's unpredictable paths. That you lean on Him who has sacrificed His all so that you might be forgiven. And if you remember who Jesus is, I give thanks. But if this day you don't know the Savior and the salvation he's won for you, if you have for some personal reason forgotten his love and his forgiveness, I would like you to remember. I would like to help you to remember who Jesus is. Max Lucado is one of my favorite storytellers. He tells a great story about shopping with his daughter while they were traveling. And they had a layover in New York City. And he, he writes, Jesus did for us what I did for one of my daughters in a shop at New York's LaGuardia Airport. 
The sign above the ceramic pieces read, Do not touch. But the wanting was stronger than the warning. And she touched. And it fell. By the time I looked up, my 10-year-old Sarah was holding the two pieces of a New York City skyline. And next to her was a very unhappy store manager. And over them both was the written rule, do not touch. Between them hung a nervous silence. She had no money and he had no mercy. So I did what dads do. I stepped in. How much do we owe you? How was it that I owed anything? Simple, she was my daughter. And since she couldn't pay, I did. And since you and I cannot pay, Christ did. We've broken so much more than souvenirs. We've broken commandments and promises, and worst of all, we've broken God's heart. But Christ sees our plight. And with the law on the wall and the shattered commandments on the floor, he steps in like a neighbor and offers a gift like a savior. What do we owe? We owe God a perfect life perfect obedience to every command, all the commands, the hard ones of humility and honesty and integrity, and we can't deliver. But Christ can, and he did. And his plunge into the Jordan is a picture of his plunge into our sin. And his baptism is an announcement to let me pay. To come near to Jesus is to come near to a perfect love and a perfect power to restore all things. And Jesus will take all the broken things in your life and restore them, and all your sad stories will come untrue. Don't forget who you are. You are sinners. But always remember who he is. He's your Savior and your King. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. In this passage, we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We see him as you want us to see him, as humble, as obedient, as glorious, as loved by you. Equipped by the Spirit to do ministry, to do battle with Satan and with his kingdom on our behalf. But we know in the end the gates of hell will not prevail against your son's kingdom and we will safely be within its walls. And we know that we can only be there by faith. And so, Lord, if there's anyone among us this day who comes here not trusting in Christ, we would ask that by your spirit you would draw that person to yourself by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that they might embrace the beloved son. Help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. 